ever struggle with anxiety? Well, the Mayo Clinic says that experiencing occasional anxiety is a normal part of life. However, people with anxiety disorders frequently have intense, excessive, and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. Ed Welch is a uh, Christian counselor and a professor at CCEF, where I did some studies. He explains that anxiety and its cousins, fear, stress, OCD, PTSD, panic disorder, phobias, and the like, coalesce around feelings of vulnerability, especially about the future. So when we feel anxious, we feel vulnerable and often about the future, something that's unknown, something that's difficult. What's going to happen? Am I in danger? Even, even something like depression includes anxiety and fear that has turned to hopelessness. You can see the correlation. Well, anxiety is both an emotional and a physical response to pressures and unknowns and fears of difficulty. We as humans, our body and soul. Our soul affects our body, our body affects our soul, and anxiety is one of those times where we really feel that interconnection, don't we? When a person struggles with anxiety, whether you do, someone you love, they usually feel nervous, restless, or tense, Sometimes have an increased heart rate with rapid breathing or sweating or trembling. They, they might experience fatigue or irritability. My wife would say, I must be anxious all the time then. They might have trouble concentrating or thinking about anything other than whatever is presently worrying them. They might even have trouble sleeping at night. Might even have Gastrointestinal problems. We've all been there before a book report in high school, right? Or a sermon on Sunday morning. What causes you to feel anxious? Perhaps thinking about relationships. Maybe your performance in a major Uh, responsibility in your life causes anxiety or finances, job security. Maybe you feel anxious when you think about your image to other people. What other people think about you causes anxiety. Maybe you feel anxious about parenting when you think about your kids and their future and their well-being. Maybe this past year and a half has been a time of practical full-time anxiety during COVID in a global pandemic. Maybe you feel most anxious about your faithfulness to God. Well, whatever it is, doctors at the Mayo Clinic would would tell you that uh, you need to get professional medical treatment when you can't work or maintain normal daily activities and relationships. Other than that, there's self-treatment. There's all kind. I mean, just Google treatment of anxiety and you're going to see everything from a healthy diet to regular sleep, relaxation and deep breathing exercises and, and things to avoid like caffeine and alcohol and nicotine. They're going to encourage rigorous exercise. In fact, I was out on a walk this week, and when I clicked onto my exercise app, it had a little pop-up that said, and I quote, feeling anxious? Go for a run. Here I thought walking fast was enough. What do you think the Bible recommends 
for anxiety and fear. Well, most of us might answer something like this. Stop being anxious. Just trust God. Which is really terrible advice. It's not very helpful at all because all that does is now cause us to feel anxious because we feel anxious. The Bible has a better remedy for it. The Bible has help for us this morning. Our sermon text, Isaiah 34 and 35, is a message to anxious hearts. It's a message of encouragement to anxious hearts. And while a a healthy diet and regular sleep and physical exercise is definitely going to help, not just your anxiety, but in all of life, the Bible teaches us that the remedy for an anxious heart is a perspective. So as we study Isaiah 4 and 35 this morning, my prayer is that you will feel encouragement for your anxious heart this morning by widening your perspective to the ultimate view of what God will do. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah 34 and 35. We're going to begin with what I believe is the key to these two chapters. Isaiah 35, verse 3 and 4. I would really encourage you to get a Bible. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. You probably have an app on your iPhone, or we've provided you with a black Bible there at your seat. Find Isaiah 35 and look with me at verse 3 and 4. In fact, could I ask everyone to read this out loud? Now, if you don't like reading out loud, that's okay. You can just uh, follow along. But everyone who doesn't mind, would you read this with me out loud? This is the key to these two chapters. Isaiah 35, verse 3 and 4, reading together. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Notice the condition of God's people in this context. What is their condition? We, we can see just here in verse 3 and at the beginning of verse 4. Now, we've been studying Isaiah for about 16 weeks now, and we know some of the things that are going on with God's people at this time and place in their history. But right here, Isaiah summarizes it this way. They have weak hands, feeble knees, and an anxious heart. Do you see that in verse 3 and 4? Weak hands is a metaphor for working. They, they don't have energy to handle their normal responsibilities in life. They can't get their work done. They have weak hands. Uh, feeble knees is a metaphor for walking or standing. They, they don't have the strength and stability to stand strong or to walk well. And where do these weak hands and weak knee and feeble knees come from? Their anxious heart, which is a metaphor for a heart that is full of worry and fear instead of strength. They don't have confidence. They feel insecure and unsafe. That's where they are back then and there. Friends, doesn't that sound like where we are, a lot of us? Some of us are that way personally a lot. Weak hands, feeble knees, anxious heart could describe many of our daily lives. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. Certainly, we live in a time period where many would say, yep, that's me right now. I don't feel, I don't feel very secure. I don't feel very safe. I, I feel wobbly. I feel unstable. Right now, I don't feel like our 
world is going well. I don't feel like our nation's going well. Well, Judah, at this time in history, Judah was feeling the threat of national enemies, superpowers like Assyria coming down on them, threatening literally their security with, with spears and swords and, and, you know, those, those rock launching, boulder blowing up fire things, you know, that we see in the movies. Right? They knew that the, the king of Assyria was going to come and besiege them like he had done everybody else. They were scared for their lives. They, they had weak hands, feeble knees, and an anxious heart over real physical threats. And that physical threat also meant an economic threat because when your city was besieged, like we're going to see that's coming up, when your city is besieged, then nothing's coming in, nothing's going out, and you only have your supplies. And when they run out, you're done, and you start eating donkey's heads and stuff like that. It's, it's bad. That's happening all over the world. Some of us, even right here in this room, feel that same kind of economic insecurity because jobs are being shut down. Judah, at this time in their history, with their weak hands, feeble knees, and anxious hearts, they turned not to God, but they turned to other nations. Bruno talked to us about that last week. Do you remember in chapter 31, one of the six woes that Isaiah presented to the people of God? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. God's people didn't look to God God's people didn't run to the Lord for counsel and help. God's people ran to the nations. God's people trusted military, financial, physical strength rather than their God. That's how they were feeling. That's what they were doing. And notice the message to these anxious people. Verse 3. Strengthen those weak hands. Make firm those feeble knees. And say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Stop. We might stop there, and we often do. We take the one who is fearful and weak and anxious, and we say, come on, be strong, don't fear. But Isaiah doesn't. Isaiah does say, there in verse 4, say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, do not fear. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to give them fuel. And the fuel is not everything's going to be okay here and now. Whatever you're fearful of isn't going to happen. You're never going to get sick. You're not going to lose your job. Nothing bad is going to happen to you because you're one of God's people. Friends, if you ever hear that health and wealth prosperity theology, ball it up like a piece of paper and throw it in a trash. It's garbage. God's people suffer. Jesus did. The answer is both be strong and do not fear Because, here's the because, look at the rest of verse 4. The rest of verse 4. Be strong, fear not, behold your God. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. 
Friends, let me make note that that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is we come to God. We come to God with our with our works and with our requests, and we come to God. But the gospel is, behold, your God came to you. And he came through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't just come, but he sacrificed himself. He put himself into our trouble and difficulty and saved us from it. God will come. Verse 4, Behold, your God will come. And I want you to note that there's two messages to the anxious heart here. Number one, a message of judgment. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. God is coming with judgment. Message number two, he will come and save you. Just like there is a message of judgment, there is a message of salvation. And friends, that's like the two sides of one coin. Both messages are equally as valuable. The message of judgment and the message of salvation. The double-sided message is what is the remedy for our anxiety in this life. That God will come, and in fact has come through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and will come again in both judgment and salvation. See, the way that we that we strengthen and make firm and empower our faith against anxiety and fear is by beholding our God. We get a perspective of what God will do ultimately. And that ultimate, big picture, wide lens corrects our narrow lens on today. If we live our lives every day with the perspective of this narrow lens that that all we see is what's here and now and what's around us, then we live for what's here and now and what's around us. And we, we get the feeling that what's here and now and around us is life. But Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God here, says this causes anxiety and fear. Put on the wide lens of the ultimate view and see what God is going to do ultimately. Your God will come with judgment and salvation. And because of that, literally everything will be okay, no matter how bad it gets right here now. And suffering with God for God, here and now in this life, is ultimately worth it because of the salvation that God brings. Friends, Isaiah, in these two messages, tells us what God will ultimately do in the future, which gives us the courage and the strength and the peace to follow him today. So I want us to look at the double-sided message to the anxious heart, Let me just give it to you in one sentence. Ultimately, the Lord, in chapter 34, will turn this world into a wilderness. And then in chapter 35, will turn this wilderness into a paradise for his people. Chapter 34. The message of judgment. God is going to take this world that flourishes now and he is going to demolish it into a wilderness. And he's going to give it to the wild animals as an inheritance. Chapter 35. Then God takes the wilderness and transforms it into a garden 
paradise and gives it as an inheritance to his redeemed. That's Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35. Can I show it to you? Get your Bibles, let's look. Message number one, the message of judgment. Chapter 34. Here it is in a nutshell. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and turn Edom, which is the representative of man's world that flourishes now, into a wilderness for wild animals. Chapter 34, let's read it. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it. Let the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall like leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Verse 5, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment on Edom upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of the lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation it will lie waste, and none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds. Nettles and thistles in its fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night, the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl rests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered each with her mate. Verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these will be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. In this first message, the message of judgment, Isaiah says, behold, ultimately, God will come with vengeance and turn Edom into a wilderness and give it as an inheritance to wild animals. Did you see all of those parts as I read through? You understand how I came up with that sentence? In chapter 34, we see that Edom 
is singled out. It's representative of all of the nations of the earth. God is furious against the whole world, all of the nations, he says in verse 1 through 4, not just Edom. But then he focuses in on Edom as a singular representative of the world full of peoples. So look at verse 5. We see judgments on Edom, that Edom is, quote, the people that God has devoted to destruction. Verse 6, the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, which is the capital city of Edom, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And then look in verse 9, Edom is mentioned again. Now remember that, that Edom is another name for the land of Canaan that God gave to his people, Israel. Edom is representative of all of the descendants of Abraham that are not Israel. So remember that God made a covenant to redeem a people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants of Jacob are Israel. Do you remember that Jacob had a twin brother, an older twin brother, named Esau? The descendants of Esau are Edom. So whereas Israel is the people whom God has redeemed from themselves by grace alone and faith alone and his Messiah king alone, Edom represents fallen man. Whereas whereas Israel represents God's people in God's place under God's rule, Edom represents fallen man in man's world under man's rule. And Edom represents the enmity of all humans against God and his people. So that's why he singles out Edom and personifies them as the world set apart and against God. And notice throughout chapter 34, that Edom flourishes now. Look at verse 9. Streams, soil, land of Eden are all flourishing now, but will be judged by God. Look at verse 12. There's nobles and princes now, but they won't be existent then. Verse 13. There are strongholds and fortresses now, but they will be crushed in God's judgment. Edom, man's world, flourishes now. Have you ever stopped to think about that? How it seems like man's world is definitely flourishing. I mean, just look at it. Financial markets, political systems, philosophical schools, religious institutions educational systems, they all seem to be doing rather well. And and the whole cause of God, the real truth of the gospel, seems like it's getting smaller and smaller and more obsolete. And yet man's world is growing and growing. But 34, chapter 34, is a vision of the ultimate future when Edom, man's world, is judged by God. Notice in verse 1, the Lord's summons. Draw near, O nations, O hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The Lord is summoning everyone to hear what's going to happen to man's world under man's rule. In verse 2 through 5, notice the Lord's anger. Verse 2, the Lord is enraged against all the nations in the, and furious against all their hosts, and he has devoted them to destruction. What will come of man's world under man's rule? 
it's devoted to destruction. In verse 5 and 6, notice the Lord has a sword. The Lord has a sword. It's sated with blood. It is gorged with fat. The blood of the lambs and the goats. And notice in verse 6 that the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter of the land of Edom. See, if man will not bring sacrifice for their sin, then man becomes the sacrifice for his own sin. The Lord summons his anger, his sword, his sacrifice, and then verse 8, the Lord's day. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Not just himself, but himself and the cause of his people. The Lord has a day. And verse 8 through 17 shows us that the Lord's day is going to take Edom that flourishes now and it's going to turn it into a wilderness and God's going to give it to the wild animals as an inheritance. Look at verse 8 through 17. In verse 9, look, the flourishing land, streams, soil, land, it becomes a volcanic wasteland. See that? No one passes through it. Verse 11, the world that man has made is given to wild animals as an inheritance. Look, we spent all this time working our magic, coming up with human ingenuity. And in the end, it's given as an inheritance to the birds. Look at verse 11. The hawk, the porcupine, the owl, the raven. It becomes the haunt of jackals. Wild animals meet there with hyenas. The wild goat cries to his fellow and the night bird settles and the owls lay their eggs and raise their young in man's world. And that inheritance to the animals is guaranteed by God's word in verse 16. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. No one's going to be missing from this. God guarantees it. Most strikingly, though, look at verse 11 of chapter 34, verse 11. If you like words, if you're a linguistic nerd, this you're going to love this. 34.11 He, the Lord, shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. So if you know anything about construction, that's a, that's a plumb line and a bob, right? And the irony is that this is usually a tool of construction, but God uses this plumb line and plumb blob in deconstruction, in demolition. But note what he calls it. He will stretch the, quote, line of confusion and the plumb line of emptiness. This is the tohu and the bohu. The word tohu And bohu comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and empty. Tohu, bohu. Before God created everything and said it was good, the earth was without form, tohu, and empty, bohu. When man gets done building his world, God surveys the world of man and deems it worthy of demolition. He stretches his plumb line over it, and it's called the plumb line of formlessness or confusion and the plumb line of emptiness, the line of tohu and the plumb line of emptiness. God measures the world that men have made for themselves and determined that it's nothing of value except to give it as an inheritance to the birds. 
the things that we are most anxious about empty, formless. What are you anxious about today? What is going to be the end of that thing? And has God measured the value of that about which we are most anxious and declared it to be empty and formless? That he will destroy? It gives us a perspective, doesn't it? The point of chapter 4, Isaiah is saying, don't trust the world that man has made. Don't trust in financial markets. Don't put your trust in political systems. For heaven's sakes, don't run to philosophy or religious institutions. Don't trust educational systems. Man's not the master of his own destiny. God, like a landowner, is going to use a string and turn man's world into a wilderness in the end. We need that perspective, friends. But that coin has another side. Not just the message of judgment, but also the message of salvation. Both are equally important. Message number two. Chapter 35. It's the message of salvation. And just like God is going to come with vengeance and recompense to make Edom a wilderness and give it to the wild animals as an inheritance, message number two is this. Behold, your God will come and save you by turning that wilderness into an a garden like Eden and giving it to his redeemed as an inheritance. And we see all of that in chapter 35. Let's read that together. Isaiah 35, this is God's word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty grounds springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. For they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Read verse 10 with me. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. 
and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Praise God. Verse 1 through 4. The declaration, the ultimate perspective that God will transform the wilderness of Eden in chapter 34. Did you see the, the carryover into 35? The wilderness, the desert, the haunt of jackals, the, all that stuff. The, the burning sand, the pitch. That God is going to transform the wilderness of Eden. After he demolishes it, he transforms it into a garden paradise like Eden. Eden becomes Eden, which is a reverse of the fall because Eden became Eden. And God, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, will make Edom Eden again. Notice in verse 1 that Eden and this transformation is characterized by gladness and rejoicing and, and blossoming. Not just blossoming, but blossoming abundantly. And not just rejoicing, but rejoicing with joy and singing. And note, the glory and majesty are given to it. That's interesting, isn't it? All glory comes from God. And he describes this here as the, the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So that those were beautiful landmarks there and then that we would know if we lived there and then. But that would be like saying now maybe the glory of the Grand Canyon and the, and the majesty of Mount Rainier. But the point is this, that, that when man tries to glorify himself, then his glory results in nothing but ruin. But when man glorifies God, God gives his glory back to man the way it was supposed to be. Verse 5 through 7, we see the result of this transformation. Did you... Recognize this language? What happens after God turns Edom into Eden? Eyes of the blind are opened. Ears of the deaf are unstopped. The lame man leapt, leaps like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sings for joy, and the waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Friends, that's already happened. That happened through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ when literally, physically, he opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He loosened mute tongues. He caused lame legs to leap like deer. And not just physically, because the ministry of Jesus is also spiritual. He takes spiritual blindness, deafness, dumbness, and disability, and he gives us all of the proper functions back through his gospel and only through his gospel, not our coming to God with our efforts to improve ourselves, but God coming to us to fix us and redeem us. Verse 8 through 10. My favorite part, the highway of holiness. Isn't that beautiful? When God turns Edom into Eden, there's a highway there. And, and apparently, if you go back and read it, it's an elevated highway. And, and it's called the highway of holiness. Notice the name in verse 8. That name implies where it leads. It leads to holiness. And we know where that is from Isaiah 6. That God is thrice holy, eternally holy, set apart, utterly different. And this highway takes us to the presence of God. The mountain of the glory of the Lord. Notice the travelers that are mentioned. Not the unclean, which is the unholy, 
but those who walk on the way. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus talked about? Following him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is a broad way and there is a narrow way. And the broad way is full with many. And it leads to destruction. But the narrow way, it's difficult, full of obstacles. And there's only a few people on it. And what is that narrow way? Isaiah 35, it's the highway of holiness that leads to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And those who are on that way, following Jesus the way, are the ones who are there. It mentions fools. I got really excited when I read this. That was more funny than it was supposed to be. It will belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I thought, oh, that's so good because I'm a fool. And even if I go astray, then God's covenant will keep me there. And the ESV thinks that's right, but almost no other translation does. So I like that, and it happens to be true. But virtually every other English translation translates it that fools are not going to walk there, they're not going to wander there, they're not going to stray up onto this path and somehow find their way to the presence of God. So unclean aren't going to be there, fools aren't going to be there. Look, no lion or ravenous beasts are going to be there. In other words, the reverse of death and violence, furious animals are gone. But verse 9 and verse 10, two kinds of people there are there. The redeemed in verse 9 and the ransomed in verse 10. And friends, that's a Bible study in itself. Just go study what it means to be the redeemed or the ransomed. The redeemer was the next of kin who took on the needs of one who was helpless in his family. And he did it willingly. It was not an obligation. He did it willingly just like Boaz did with Ruth, to rescue her from her situation. He was her kinsman redeemer. And the Lord Jesus Christ has willingly taken on our helplessness to rescue us. And then the ransomed are those who are in slavery or in prison, and the ransom is one who pays the enormous price for freedom. That's who's there the redeemed and the ransomed. And notice what they're doing. The final destination. I imagined like, like an airport with, with people arriving at this destination. Look in verse 10. They come with singing. That's the atmosphere in the customs line. Everlasting joy is on their heads like crowns. And they obtain When they get there, they obtain gladness and joy as if that's their inheritance. But what's not there? Sorrow and the sighing of life. Aren't you glad? You know what's not there in heaven, in the new kingdom? Anything to be anxious about. Why? Because God will come with judgment on man's world. And he will turn Edom into a wilderness. But that's not all. Behold, your God will come redeemed and ransomed one through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come and save you by turning this wilderness into a garden like Eden, and that will be our inheritance forever and ever. Amen. Are you in Christ? Are you hoping with all of your life in the Lord Jesus Christ, in him alone? 
or are you still looking to man's world that will come to ruin? Pray with me, please. Oh, Christ, our Christ, sometimes we can't see beyond the blur of our own earthly lives. But because of your work, our life is defined neither by the hurts of our past nor the pains of our present, but by the promise of our future. Let us live this day in light of that truth. Indeed, you, our King, have promised that we, in the full vigor of eternal youth, will dwell with you in your beautiful city. We'll feast at your table. We'll enjoy the glad fellowship of all the redeemed. This is the the truest story that we've ever heard. Oh God, cause us to preach this story constantly to our own heart, lest we forget where all of history was always heading. Make us increasingly mindful, O oh God, of that greater context, of that vast, magnificent story that cradles our own small and wounded stories so that we might hear the quiet thunder of the Spirit's whisper. This is not the end. This is not at all the end. This is only the moment before the better holiday begins.